question tonight is that we all will discuss after is why be a playwright? And uh, I'm very excited. It's really, in 1984, I was a judge in a, uh, a contest called the Avery Hopwood Prize, a very distinguished prize given out by University of Michigan. And uh, it, was, it was the first time that Arthur Miller, when he won it, got any, uh, 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 was noted at all. Uh, and it was a great, he always claims it as a, as a great stepping stone for him as a playwright. And in 1984, the, uh, there were lots of uh, applicants, and the winner was very, very clear. It was a young man named Charles Shulman. And then uh, for a play called uh, The Ground Zero Club, and he won the Avery Hopwood Prize in, in 84. And then in 85, Steve Sondheim called me at the drama school. He, he, said, he said, I've just read the most wonderful play for the, uh, for the Young Playwrights Festival by this guy at University of Michigan. And I said, name Charlie Shulman. And he said, how did you know that? There's a play called Ground Zero Club. The play was done in one of the early, uh, uh, in one of the early uh, uh, evenings of the, uh, of the Young Playwrights Festival. Charlie graduated uh, from... Um, uh, from uh, University of Michigan uh, and came to New York, uh, was working as a newspaper man on a Westchester paper. A job became available at Lincoln Center, the Vivian Beaumont Theater, which he took, uh, where he still works, and uh, goes to as a graduate student at uh, NYU Tisch School of the Arts, uh, and has uh, been at the Eugene O'Neill uh, Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut and uh, has founded his own playwrights collective. This is one of the extraordinary things about being in the theater and about the process of time, is just seeing in the seven years where this uh, remarkable young man has come from. And just, I'm so glad to introduce him at this part of his career. And uh, I introduce Charles Shulman. Thank you. Thanks, John. Wow, that was very nice, John. I felt like you were talking about somebody else. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to read from a play called The Greenhouse Effect. Uh, green is a family name. And um, it's the first, this is the first scene. It's, it takes place next February. It's a converted barn belonging to the Green family on the property of their independently owned farm. A time-elapsed sunrise streams light through the windows, obscuring any view of what might exist outside the house. Sally, a physically mature 14-year-old, sits on the floor in a catatonic trance with her oversized stuffed dog, Fido, beside her. Her brother, George, a loser in his mid-30s, wears a polyester brown McDonald's uniform and paper hat. He sits at the table circling the want ads. Their mother, June, holds down a large flounder until it dies on the kitchen counter. <laughs> June. Either I am having hot flashes, or we are experiencing a heat wave in February. February, which has always been the cruelest month. I don't know what has gotten into the world lately. She chops the fish's head off. But it is certainly behaving differently. Sometimes I don't recognize it anymore. Have you noticed how nothing stays the same as long as it used to? Nowadays, we can no longer take for granted even something as fundamental as seasonal change. Where will it end? Soon the most inconceivable of possibilities will seem boring and commonplace. If Dumbo were elected president of the United States, we would not only quickly get used to a flying elephant in the White House, 
we would soon accept the inevitability of his re-election. <laughs> so what if it's 85 degrees in February when we are accustomed to snow and bitter cold? What good would it do us to question it? What harm could possibly come from basking in the sunshine of a glorious day like today? George, why don't you do something productive with yourself? You should be out with your father plowing the fields, George says. Don't start talking crazy, mother. You know the only fields dad plow are the fallow ones of ambiguity. <laughs> if we don't make our payment, the bank will repossess the farm. We'll be finished, kaput, capiche. How could you pick a time like this to get laid off from your job at McDonald's? We are living in a recession, mother. People cannot afford to eat poorly anymore. As far as I'm concerned, they can go McFuck themselves. I don't care what they say. They'll never convince me they're serving health food. I gave the best years of my life to that organization. Can't they place you somewhere else? There is a position available at the, at the new franchise in the Amazon Water Basin. They're looking for a few good employees to help defoliate the rainforest, diminish the world's oxygen supply, and displace the local indigenous population. Sounds interesting, but I would prefer to stay in the area. If that doesn't pan out, I can always join the armed forces. June. What if you die in a war that doesn't make any sense? Of course, I would rather die in a war that makes sense. But no matter what happens, I'm guaranteed a free college education. There must be some new fields opening up. Organized crime is expanding its interest in waste management. I could manage waste. What about a career in drug rehabilitation? I need three years with an addiction and a year or two of clean living before I can get a decent job. There are a lot of ex-addicts out there. It's a very competitive market. Credentials are a must. There must be something you can succeed at. Not necessarily. Besides, you're putting too much pressure on me. Why is this burden of responsibility weighing so heavily on my shoulders? Billy would have found a way to save the farm. I am sick and tired of hearing how everything would have been different around here if only Billy hadn't. George, no. Don't relive the trauma. <laughs> how could you do it, mother? What were you thinking? I don't know. How could you abandon him in a shopping mall? He was only seven years old, old enough to fend for himself. Billy was a very independent kid. I wouldn't worry. I'm sure everything turned out just fine. I stopped feeling sorry for him a long time ago. In fact, I'm glad it happened. It was always Billy this, Billy that. Billy, Billy, Billy. Billy was the good one. Billy was the smart one. Billy was the handsome one. See what I mean? You always, you always loved Billy best. You never cared about me. A loud explosion is heard. Plaster falls, flashing red lights, sirens. June, what was that? Sally, the 14-year-old in a catatonic trance on the floor. A DC-9 crashed and exploded in a small farming community near the Canadian border. June, those poor people. I feel so sorry for their families. A tragedy like this could have just as easily happened here. We should count our blessings. All 291 people on board are presumed either missing or dead. How did it happen? The cause of the fatal mishap is sus suspected to be engine trouble or some type of mechanical failure. George, there's quite a commotion out there. Must have been some kind of accident. Looters, camera crews, Red Cross volunteers, Innocent bystanders, broken glass, unattached limbs, wreckage strewn everywhere. Have they ruled out the possibility of terrorism? Why do people commit terrorist acts? Nobody fully understands the mind of a te terrorist. 
Some people believe they have a genetic predisposition for wreaking havoc, committing acts of violence, and refusing to seek political solutions through proper formal negotiations. Of course, we do not... Of course, we do not negotiate with terrorists for good reasons. These people are fanatics, dear. They speak a language that is totally foreign to us. George picks at the salad on the table. He looks up at the ceiling. Wow, these plaster chips taste real. He picks up the fish and looks inside it. Oh, my God, there's a hypodermic needle in this fish. Illegally disposed of AIDS-contaminated hospital waste, washing up on local shores, closing beaches for the summer. Either that or the fish was an addict. Uh-oh, what's happening? It's an earthquake. Earthquake! Everybody falls down and stands up again. George, I feel like I'm surfing on jello. The earthquake stops. Never mind, everything's back to normal now. June. What happened? Was that an earthquake? Where was its epicenter? How much damage did it cause? George, are any major sporting events going to be postponed? It's too early to tell. The airplane crash is still happening. It's dominating our attention right now. Nobody seemed to notice the earthquake or whatever it was. If nobody noticed it, it was probably nothing. But the earth shook. Plaster fell from the ceiling. These old places need a lot of work. This house has always had a solid foundation. Times change, Mom. Structures become flawed. Perhaps it was a subway train passing underneath us. Subway? What are you talking about? We live on a farm in the middle of nowhere. We are rural Americans. What subway could possibly be passing underneath us? The express train. Don't be stupid. You know that doesn't stop here. June, I think what we have just experienced was a substantial seismic occurrence, an unreported natural disaster. What are natural disasters? Tragedies which occur in nature of which we have no control, like hurricanes and typhoons, plagues and famine, homelessness and crime, power outages and mid-air collisions, low grades and poor attendance. <laughs> when the space shuttle blew up, was that a natural disaster, a technical malfunction, or sabotage? Actually, Sally, this is a difficult question that you might be too stupid to understand. It is also a taboo type of question which should never be asked in public since someone might be offended. However, since we are in the privacy of our own home, we don't have to worry about other people's feelings. I have nightmares about it. It keeps exploding in my mind. At school, they tell us to try to forget about it, that those astronauts were heroes. Of course they were heroes. Anyone who says otherwise should be shot and their corpses desecrated. The first teacher in space was an admirable endeavor designed to get young American students interested in the space program. Unfortunately, they learned a lesson completely opposite of what was intended. <laughs> But the truth is, everything those astronauts were going to do in outer space was for the betterment of mankind. Sure, 90% of the mission was top secret due to its military application. But with the other 5%, they were going to build better schools, fight the drug problem, and make a better tomorrow. The sound of the airplane crashing is heard again. Lights flick on and off. Sirens flash on Sally's face. Several airplane dinners fly in through the window. <laughs> June, whatever happened to that airplane crash? The accident is still in progress. All we know are the preliminary findings. The sound of glass smashing is heard. A duffel bag flies in through the window. The door swings open. A young, long-haired man wearing an army jacket, shirt open to his waist, combat boots, and beaded necklaces around his neck is thrown headfirst into the room, crashes over the table, and lands on the floor with a thud. Ugh! Confused and disoriented, he looks around the room. Sally turns her head and makes eye contact with another human being for the first time in her life. They stand locked, locked in each other's line of vision. How did I get here? Sally tells him through mental telepathy. 
He sees his duffel and runs to check the airline tags. I was on a plane. He stares at Sally in amazement. Sally turns her gaze back to the audience, having been altered by this experience. Billy looks up at June. Mom? My prayers have been answered. June kisses Billy all over his face. Ah, oh, geez, Mom, this is embarrassing. My little Billy has returned to me. My name is Bill. I stopped going by Billy about ten years ago. I guess we have a lot to catch up on. I don't know what I'm doing here. It's just a phase many young people go through. No, I, I mean, I think I hit my head. What happened, Mother? I'm sorry, honey. If you only knew how much I suffered while you were away. You abandoned me in a mall. I waited for you for six weeks. I thought, you were staying, I thought you were staying at a friend's house. For six weeks? I know I wasn't the perfect parent. We tried our best to find you. We had your picture put on milk cartons. You knew how much I hated that photograph, and yet you used it anyway. <laughs> George. You can't blame Mom for everything, Billy. Somewhere along the line, you have to take responsibility for your own life. Hi, George. Hi, yourself. How's everything? Everything sucks. Everything is terrible. Your disappearance ruined my life. Broke up mom and dad's marriage. Prevented me from going to college. Made Sally mentally ill. Drove the bank to foreclose on the farm. Now you've shown up to make everything even worse. What are you blaming me for? Mom left me in a J.C. Penney's. I thought I'd left something on in the oven. We were going to buy new shoes to go back to school in. You look like you could still use a new pair. Poor baby. How did you manage to survive all these years on your own? It's all a little fuzzy right now. All I know is that it wasn't easy. In the beginning, I spent my days hanging out at the mall, smoking cigarettes with a local teenager, scavenging food out of the garbage cans at night. Eventually, I realized you weren't going to come back for me, and since I was too young to know where I lived, I decided to find a way to take care of myself. See, Mom, I told you he would be all right. So what did you do? There weren't a lot of job openings in the mall. Only McDonald's was hiring. You worked at McDonald's? No. Instead, I decided to escape from the suburbs while I was still young and my personality not yet fully formed. I caught a Greyhound to New York City and got out at the Port Authority Terminal. There I was surrounded by homeless people, crack addicts, prostitutes, and commuters. <laughs> you must have been frightened, especially during rush hour. It was pretty overwhelming. After all, I was born in a barn, a converted barn. But nonetheless, your origins should never keep you from achieving great things. Somehow I knew that. I mean, I was too young to articulate it that way, to intellectualize on that kind of abstract level. But I knew that at least I was having an adventurous life, that my experiences were unique and profound in a way most people would never know. So what did you do? I began speaking to the people around me. I found many who were even more lost than I was. There I was, an abandoned seven-year-old suburbanite, talking to a grown homeless man with a drug habit and a personality disorder. Soon I came to understand that no matter how far a person might fall, we all start out as somebody's little baby. And that realization made me weep. Oh, come on. Shut up, George. You don't really believe any of this crap, do you? Then what happened, Billy? I summoned all the strength within me, and I organized all those discarded people, and together we tried to create a utopian society where trust, love, and the recognition of each and every individual's value to the community is of primary importance. How wonderful. It was wonderful, but it didn't work. I was too young. Bit off a little more than I could chew. So what did you do? I became a moral degenerate. Seemed like the only alternative at the time. June. I've always warned my children that life is an emotional roller coaster. I never even heard you say that once. Life is an emotional roller coaster. So I became a drug addict and a prostitute. Then fate reversed my misfortune. See?
I was the eighth caller on a morning radio show and won a free state of drug rehabilitation center program in Nevada. I was there for a few years until I joined the staff as a certified drug counselor. I did a just say no to drugs public service announcement, got an agent, did a few commercials on television. Which ones? You probably never saw them. I was the guy who jumped up and said, smorgasbord. That was you? <laughs> Maybe you remember this one. More pork sausages, mom, please. Oh my God, that was you. I thought there was a resemblance. After a while, I just didn't find that kind of life satisfying. And the truth is, I was kind of lost. So I went to Tibet, joined a monastery, and tried to reach Nirvana. Nirvana, how was that? The road to Nirvana turned out to be empty and meaningless. I had to walk out in the middle. It made me recognize how nothing is pure anymore, not even spiritual enlightenment. After that didn't work out, I really didn't know what to do with my life, so I went to college. <laughs> what, did, what did you study? I received advanced degrees in biology, cosmology, and climatology before joining a rock band and tooling around for a couple of years. Gosh, you've done so much and you're only 19. I try to live every moment of life to the fullest of my capabilities, knowing that even the slightest of sneezes could quite possibly cause a brain aneurysm and instantaneous death. <laughs> Billy sneezes. Bless you. George passes out. June puts a piece of candy in his mouth. You must be hungry, Billy. I can't remember if they fed us anything on the plane. I wanted to wait for your father, but it's later than I thought. We might as well get started without him. Billy sits at the table. June gathers the airplane dinners. Would you like roast beef or chicken? <laughs> I'll try the chicken. She serves him the chicken. George? George gets up groggily and sits at the table. Chicken, please. All we have is beef. She shoves the beef in front of him. <laughs> Sally? June drops a piece of chicken in the dog dish. June points her finger at Fido while Sally sticks her head in the bowl and eats. Stay, stay. Fido. June returns to the table and sits. What a day. I suppose everything happens for a reason. George. Mother, are you implying that these seemingly random and bizarre series of events are somehow inextricably linked by forces beyond our realm of understanding? Do you expect us to really believe they sabotaged a commercial airliner at the cost of millions of dollars and hundreds of lives in order to create a diversionary smokescreen designed to draw attention away from an unforeseen natural disaster? Come on, mother, be serious. Why would anyone want to be covering up a teeny-weeny little earthquake in the middle of bumfuck nowhere? How silly of me. I never thought about it that way. I'm in such a state of confusion, what with trying to make dinner and saving the farm from bankruptcy and helping George find a new career and Billy coming home and the earthquake and the plane crash that I just got carried away. What plane crash? <laughs> well, you know, the, that tragic plane crash in the small farming community near the Canadian border. That's over now, Mom. It's ancient history. No one remembers that anymore. It's just a blur, a Fig Newton. It's all the same plane crash. Billy. Who's that sweet babe sitting on the floor? Is that your girlfriend, George? June. That's your sister, Sally. That's Sally? She certainly has developed into quite a... Well, she certainly has developed. She hasn't been responding well to her medication. What's wrong with her? June. We believe her to be overstimulated by popular culture. <laughs> Personally, I think she's possessed by an international news surface. It could be a combination of things. One theory is that modern society is going through extraordinary changes at a pace so rapid it exceeds Sally's abilities of comprehension. She's paralyzed by a huge barrage of unadulterated information. The rest of us are seemingly able to function because we can in no way fathom the true significance of events surrounding our lives. In fact, we don't even really have the energy to try. 
It's like being unable to sort through your junk mail. She also may be experiencing some millennial angst. Who isn't? It makes personal relations very difficult. Sally stands up on shaky legs and does a strange interpretive dance. Billy, what's going on? George, she's having one of her seizures. Don't pay any attention. I think she's trying to say something. William. She knows I'm here. Sally? No. No. What is it? What's the matter? No. Sally, honey, would you like a glass of water? No! Thank you. Our drinking water is contaminated. The entire Earth's water supply has been affected. Bottled water is selling very well. The Surgeon General has suggested we bottle our tap water for psychological reasons. We are in the midst of a drought emergency. We are? Americans are being called upon to conserve water in this time of crisis, even if it's contaminated. The typical American toilet uses seven gallons of water per flush. Billy, wait a second. We published that statistic last year. Our government is considering issuing fines to people who flush their toilet incessantly. How much is too much? Government shouldn't be going around poking their noses into people's bathrooms. These are just some of the tough moral and ethical questions Dumbo is facing right now. The Sierra Club. I work for the Sierra Club. Yeah, right. Give me a break. Gene, why did they send you here? I don't know. Scientists have attributed unusually hot weather to a global warming process caused by the excessive presence of carbon dioxide and other gases in the atmosphere. It's beginning to come to me. These gases absorb and prevent heat generated by the sun from returning to space in the form of infrared radiation, thus creating a warming effect which may be responsible for erratic and often extreme weather conditions. Have you been listening to the news or reading the papers? June. No, but we've managed to stay informed. Do you find this weather we've been having unusual or suspicious? Well, unusual, yes, but suspicious? How can weather be suspicious? That's what I'm here to find out. I'm a scientist, Mom, a leading expert on the subject of global warming. An expert? I've been sent here to save the farm, George. <gasps> you see, this warm weather we are having is a trend that will transform our lives forever. This transformation will challenge both our moral values as well as our basic instincts for survival. George, you sure can spew a lot of trash out of that hole in your face. But when are we going to see some results? Billy, as a matter of fact, the Sierra Club has authorized me to give you this check to pay off the mortgage to the bank. Oh, Billy. Hold it. Don't accept that check until we know what this is about. Billy, we are living in a time of crisis, standing unsteadily at the crossroads of history, at war with ourselves and conflict with nature. Soon we will experience the kind of chaos and disorder never before known to man. George. Is that it? I've been sent here to help convert the farm into an international environmental research center. Our farm is about to transform itself into a beautiful, lush, tropical paradise. June takes the check. With any luck, the work we accomplish here will help steer the world in a new and positive direction. June, do you think that's possible? No. What do we have to lose? Oh, Billy... God has sent you to save us from bankruptcy, both moral and otherwise. It wasn't God, Mom. It was the Sierra Club. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry.
about six months ago, I was looking for another playwright to collaborate on um, two um, related one acts with. And so uh, I called uh, Theater Communications Group, I called Yale, and I said, you know, who have you got out there? And um, a couple people mentioned Susan Laurie Parks. And they said, she's got a wonderful voice and she's an amazing writer. And um, it's so unique, though, that I, I don't know if she, you know, it would really make sense for her to collaborate with anyone. So that obviously interested me because, you know, it's rare to find voices that really are original and have, um, have a real sort of structure of their own and, and ask some tough questions about form as well as being poetic. And when I became exposed to Susan's work, um, I felt that it touched me in a very, in a way that sort of bypassed my conscious mind sometimes. And sometimes I don't even understand it um, in, in a conscious sense, but I understand the truth of it in a deeper way. And that to me is the most exciting type of writing. So um, Susan is uh, from Mount Holyoke, which uh, Wendy's also from. And um, let's see, she's written uh, Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom and won an Obie Award for that, The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World, Betting on the Dust Commander, Fishes, The Sinner's Place, The America Play, and Devotees in the Garden of Love, which is her collaboration that's supposed to go with my play. Um, and in 1989, she was named the year's most promising playwright uh, by the New York Times. Uh, please welcome Susan Laurie Parks. Thanks, David. Um, David and I are collaborating on these these two one acts, and um, before we started writing them, we, we talked about a common theme, and uh, they were uh, the common theme was interracial relationships. And David's play, my play, is called Devotees in the Garden of Love, and David's play is called Bondage. So just, <laughs> but um. I'm going to read a little bit from two uh, very different plays, or two different plays. Um, the first one is I'm going to read the overture from The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World. Uh, it was done uh, about a year ago at Baca Downtown, a theater which has since closed, and it's going to be done again at Yale Winterfest, and I hope uh, Yale doesn't close down because of it. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, the piece has <laughs> so bad. the piece has eleven characters, uh, which are called figures, eleven figures, and I'll read them off to you, and then uh, I'll read the overture, and they just all talk, you know, one right after the other. So I'm not going to try to distinguish. So the eleven figures are black man with watermelon, black woman with fried drumstick, lots of grease and lots of pork, I can't do this, uh, yes and greens, black-eyed peas, cornbread, queen then Pharaoh Hatshepsut, before Columbus, old man River Jordan, ham, and bigger and bigger and bigger, prunes and prisms, and voice on the TV. So that's the, those are the 11 people. And they begin by introducing themselves. <clears throat> The black man moves his hands. Lots of grease and lots of pork. Queen than Pharaoh Hatshepsut. And bigger and bigger and bigger. Voice on the TV. Ham. Prunes and prisms. Old man River Jordan. Yes and greens. Black eyed peas. Cornbread. Before Columbus. 
The black man moves his hands. Not yet. Let Queen then Pharaoh Hatshepsut tell you when. This is the death of the last black man in the whole entire world. Yesterday, today, next summer, tomorrow, just a moment ago in 1317, died the last black man in the whole entire world. <gasps> oh, don't be alarmed. Do not be afeard. It was painless, a painless passing. He falls 23 floors to his death, 23 floors from a passing ship, from space to splat on the pavement. He have a head he been keeping under the TV on his bottom pantry shelf. He have a head that hurts. It don't fit right. Put it on to go to the store, and it pinched him when he walks. His thoughts don't got room. Why died it he, huh? Where are he going to go now that he done died it? Where he gonna go to wash his hands? You should write that down. You should write that down and you should hide it under a rock. This is the death of the last black man in the whole entire world. Not yet. The black man moves his hands. You are too young to move. Let me move it for you. The black man moves his hands. He moves his hands round. Back, back, back to that. Not dat. When the world used to be round. The world used to be round. Around world? Around the world? When was this? Columbus before. Before Columbus. Before Columbus. <gasps> before Columbus, the world used to be round. They put a duh on the end of round, making round. Thusly, they set in motion the end. Without that duh, we could have gone on spinning forever. The duh thing ended. Things ended. Before Columbus. The popular thinking of the day back then in them days was that the world was flat. They thought the world was flat. Back then when they thought the world was flat, they were afeard and stayed at home. They wanted to go out back then when they thought the world was flat, but the water had in it dragons, of which meaning these dragons they were afeard back then. When they thought the world was flat, they stayed at home. Them thinking the world was flat kept it round. Them thinking the sun revolved around the earth kept them satellite-like. They figured out the truth and scurried out. Figuring out the truth put them in their place, and they scurried out to put us in ours. Mmm, yes. You should write that down. You should write that down, and you should hide it under a rock. Not yet. The black man bursts into flames. The black man bursts into blames. Whose fault is it? Ain't mine's. Whose fault is it? Ain't mine's. I can't remember back that far. And besides, I wasn't even there. Ha, ha, ha. The black man laughs out loud. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Round the world and back again. What you seen, Hambone girl? Didn't see you. I saw the world. I was there. Didn't see you. I was there. Didn't see you. The black man moves his hands. We are too young to see. Let them see it for you. We are too young to rule. Let them rule it for you. We are too young to have. Let them have it for you. You are too young to write. Let them, let them do it before you. The black man moves his hands. You should write it down. Because if you don't write it down, then they will come along and tell the future that we did not exist. You should write it down, and you should hide it under a rock. You should write down the past, and you should write down the present, and in what in the future you should write it down. 
It will be of us, but you should mention them from time to time, so that in the future when they come along and know that they exist, you should hide it all under a rock, so that in the future when they come along they will say that the rock did not exist. We getting somewheres. We getting down. Down, 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 down. I saw Columbus coming. I saw Columbus coming, going over to visit you, to borrow a cup of sugar, so he said. I waved my hands in warning. You waved back. I ain't seen you since. In the future, when they came along, I meeting them on the coast. Ah, the coast. I was so polite. But in the dirt, I wrote, ha, ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. The black man, he move, he move, he hands. And that's the overture from that play. There. So that's, takes a lot. <laughs> Look a lot. Um, and this, the, the next little bit I'm going to read is, uh, from a play I'm working on right now, and it's called The America Play. And instead of 11 characters, there are only about three. <laughs> and this time, only two people are talking, you know, back and forth. Um, uh, it's the story of a, a woman named Lucy, who's like about, you know, 400 years old, and her son, who's named Brazil, who is younger than she is. <laughs> and they are in this huge hole. So on stage, you'd see this enormous hole. Uh, and you, you know, they're in this big thing uh, that uh, their hus Lucy's husband, Brazil's father, dug, and then went on his way. It's the the inexact replica of the great hole of history. So, um, th so what they're doing is they're digging, looking for the bones of the father because they heard that he died in this hole. So they're trying to find his bones. So Brazil, the son, is digging, and Lucy, the old, old mother, is sitting with a big clock on her lap. She's telling time. So I'll read just a bit of this. And Lucy starts out. Here he comes, huh, still riding to the rescue. Is that right? Uh-huh. Still riding to the rescue, still riding to the rescue after all these years. Is that right? Whoops. Uh, my left limb feels loose, Lucy. Big hand on the 12, little hand on the 9. See this here? Clock says 9 o'clock. Nowhere near quitting time. Huh. To the rescue. Huh. Riding. Huh. My paw's gonna fall off. Still riding my paw, dig. <clears throat> now, 10.45, a quarter to, you got the whole day ahead of you, Brazil. Maybe, maybe, to the rescue. <laughs> Listen to it. <laughs> the sound of the line alone's enough to make you want to go on. My paw, dig on. Maybe it's going to fall off. 
Big hand on the eight, little hand on the seven. It's early yet. Maybe it's going to fall out. Not even noon yet. So much to live for. Let's look on the bright side. All right. Maybe dig. <laughs> to the rescue. <laughs> riding. <laughs> Still riding to the rescue after all these years. <laughs> after all these years. Well, how come? How come? It's a big country. That's how come. And she falls asleep. <laughs> Whoops! My left paw left me, Lucy. What? Where's my paw? It slipped off while we slept. Must be somewhere around here, under the earth, digging on its own, working overtime, gone solo without me. Just a stump left. So much to live for. Look on the bright side. I can't complain. You're faking, Mr. Brazil. Uh-uh. Trying to get you some benefits. Uh-uh. I know me a faker when I see one. I seed your father once, briefly. Ha! <laughs> we lived out east before we come out here. West, I still sees him. Although he's past, son, I still sees him. <laughs> In my head. I look out that way. West, the same way he left when he left us back east. I look out that way. West, the same way he left, and I sees what he left for us. This hole, this great hole, this hole he digged for us, us with his own hands. Before my eyes, I see this great hole, and after my eyes, behind them, I see him, son, his echo in my head. His hole, his echo. In your head, in my head. He was a faker, a great big faker, too. He was your father. That's the connection. You take after he takes. You take after him. I do? Sure. Put your paw back where it belongs. Go on, back on its stump. Poke it out of your sleeve, son. There you go. 11 a.m., plenty of time. I'll draw an X for you. See? There's an X. Huh. Dig here. Thank you. Hey, Wendy. Hello. Um, when I found out that I would be part of this wonderful evening at Penn, I received a letter from somebody named Mindy Dickstein, and I thought to myself, what a beautiful name. And, uh, <laughs> and then I remembered that I actually knew Mindy Dickstein from my theater, from Playwrights Horizons, because she had been William Finn's assistant at the theater, and William had always spoken very fondly of Mindy and the assistance that she had given him with his work. But what I didn't know was that Mindy Dickstein was a playwright. So I began reading her plays, and I was just delighted with what I found in them. There was a play called The Existential Gourmet, which featured characters such as the director of the Organization for Understanding Management and Prevention of Acute Psychic Pain and Anxiety. And I thought to myself, how does she know? <laughs> and there was another character named Flora Forster, a young German traveler who is living a hypothetical life. 
and I once again thought to myself, how does she know? And I began reading all of the Dickstein oeuvre, and I was extremely impressed with them because it was a theatrical voice, both uh, a voice of irony and satire and of truth. And I think what this evening shows is how exciting it is when you come across uh, a new and vibrant theatrical voice. So I'm very happy to introduce to you tonight Mindy Dickstein, who's a graduate of New York University with a BFA in drama. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't think I've ever had any such, so much niceness <laughs> in one evening. <laughs> um, so many nice things said about me in one evening, I should say. I have a picture of a naked man here to keep me from getting too nervous. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm not showing it to you. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read the first 12 pages of The Existential Gourmet, which is a comedy with some sad scenes, too. Um, in the dark, the bouncy theme song of The Existential Gourmet, a television cooking program, is heard. I'll read you the words. Do you often wish for a sumptuous dish, but find when you try that you just can't cook? Do you feel it's too late to learn how to sate your curiosity? Well, you still can savor your day with the existential gourmet. Kierkegaard, Sartre, Nietzsche too, Heidegger, Marcel, and Camus, sure, they could philosophize, but did they ever tenderize? <laughs> So if you're feeling out of sorts, and the bakery is out of torts, and the place on the corner won't deliver, why don't you try to cook? <laughs> uh, all you have to do is watch and listen, broadcast live from her studio kitchen to dear Felicity. With her, even you can savor your day. She's the existential gourmet. There's a sound of applause as the theme song ends and a spotlight illuminates Felicity Ickelbergen-Stocken, a woman of about 30, standing before a large chart diagramming the best places to cut a raw chicken prior to cooking it. She's wearing a bright orange Chanel suit and holding a large wooden spoon, which she uses like a pointer. Felicity smiles at the audience and then speaks. Delmore Schwartz, in an essay entitled Existentialism, Does It Really Exist? <laughs> defined it succinctly as follows. Existentialism means that no one else can take a bath for you. <laughs> Albert Camus, by contrast, expressed it in this way. Suicide is the only philosophical question. I've long thought that if we were to pose Camus' question first, then follow it up with the Schwartz analysis, the result would be a staggering rise in the number of people willing to visit the New York City Bureau of Water, Sewage, and Social Welfare, which is located in a newsstand on the second floor of the Federal Court Building in Brooklyn, run by two elderly sisters, one of whom routinely refuses to listen, and the other who, as a matter of pride, refuses to see. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. My own personal philosophy can, I think, best be expressed by the raw chicken and the problem of where to place the knife so as to make the most effective separation of, for example, leg from thigh. Later on, by the way, there will be a recipe for chicken diavolo. But first, I would like to address tonight your recent cards and letters. Quite a number of you have asked me to recount the story of how I came to be the existential gourmet. On the one hand, I'd really like to say I haven't got the faintest idea that life is a crapshoot, that the universe is just an unforgiving void, that hope and desire are the twin illusions, fate fickle but not a finger, destiny a tantalizing but elusive notion, etc., etc. But that, as far as I'm concerned, would be an evasion of the real question, which is not suicide, but where are you now and how on earth did you get there? <laughs> so here's my reply. The lights rise on Irene, a woman about 30 years old, and her daughter Lucy, circa 1968. They are wearing matching dresses and are sunning themselves on identical, Lucy's is smaller, lounge chairs in a suburban yard. Irene's hair is frosted and teased, styled with an absurd flip at the shoulders. Irene is catching rays with a tinfoil-covered reflector. Lucy is gazing at the sky, which is blue. Uh, Felicity says, that's Irene, my mother over there, in the psychedelic sundress, and that's me sitting next to her. That's what I looked like in 1968 when they used to call me by my nickname, Lucy. Irene made the mother-daughter dresses. Her hair is by Miss Clairol. This is part one of how I became the existential gourmet. The spotlight on Felicity goes out. There's the sound of bees, insects, lawnmowers, sprinklers watering the grass, and a breeze rustling the trees. Irene says, I exist because I am present. I make my hair blonde, and that helps me to be visible. I insist on being here, no matter what. No matter what happens, it's a struggle. This is what I'm doing. I'm striving, twisting. You have no idea what's inside here, Lucy. I want you to know this. Because someday, I am going to go bald. I'm going to lose all of my hair, and your father will not love me anymore, and things will become hard. <laughs> because what he loves, he loves my hair. My hair is me, see? I'm scratching the edges. My hair is me. Lucy, lying back on her chair, looking at the sky, says, watch me, watch me, I'm spinning. Irene says, look at the pretty dress. Look at our pretty dresses made by me. Now we're twins. We're identical. We feel the same things. You are my child. You are special to me. I exist because of you. You make me happen. Someday when you're grown up and live somewhere far away from me, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You are there already. You are living in the future now. My past is your future, see? My past is now, which is 1968, which is the present, which is your future. I read that in House Beautiful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something about a gulf. Oh, forget it. Be careful, there's a bee. Lucy says, look at me, I'm moving and the clouds are standing still in the sky. Can you feel what I feel? The clouds are still and the earth is moving underneath me, underneath my chaise. I can feel the globe turning on its axis, moving very fast, rushing around and around, right underneath my spine. My backbone is connected to the chaise and the chaise to the patio and the patio to the ground and the ground reaches all the way to the center of the earth and we are spinning. Can you see me spinning? Yeah, well, never mind about that, Lucy. I have something important to tell you and that's not important, so listen to me. This is something it's time for you to know. In fact, I've been meaning to tell you for some time now, and, well, I just forgot. So listen to me now. Yes, you're a Jew. I'm a what? You're a Jew. What's a Jew? It's what you are. Oh, people kill Jews. Why? Because they're Jews. Why? Because that's what they are. They're Jews. Oh, 
Is that why I can't have hair like yours? No, you can't have hair like mine because Anymore, like William who lives next door? No, you can't take your top off anymore because I said so. Can you take off your top? No, I can't. Why not? Because. Because why? Because I said so, Lucy, that's why. Don't look at me like that. I'm just trying to give you a sense of things as they are. You can't keep living in a pretend world. You can't take off your, chop, your top and you're a Jew and that's the way things are and nothing that you or I can do will make any difference whatsoever. I don't want to be a Jew. Well, that's too bad, dear, because that's what you are. Am I the only one? No. I'm a Jew, and so is your father. I'll bet William isn't. He can take off his top when it's hot. That has nothing to do with it. William can take his top off because he's a boy, that's why. And you're a girl, and you cannot take off your top, and that is that, end of discussion. Can I be a boy when I grow up? No, you can't. Now be careful, there's a bee. Lucy eyes her surroundings fearfully. She freezes as the bee lands on her leg. She tries to get Irene's attention, but she can't move. Irene says, Fresca, I want a Fresca. Be good to me, honey, and run inside and get me a bottle. <laughs> Music is heard as someone turns on a radio from inside the house. It's a well-respected man sung by the kinks. Irene says, Daddy's home, and then closes her eyes and resumes her tanning. Lucy waits in fear for the bee to fly away. The music swells, the lights go out, and come back up on a suburban kitchen, also 1968. Flower power mirrored wallpaper. The room is suffused with sunshine. The music continues. Sherman, a man about 30 years old, in a crew cut, in, with his hair in a crew cut, black suit, tie, moving in and out of the kitchen, packing a suitcase which is propped open on the kitchen table. Lucy enters and watches him. He says to her, life is a torture, Lucy. Everything you do is some kind of cruel torture and there's no relief at all, except if you have money, which is everything. You'll, you'll understand this when you grow up. Right now, we don't understand each other, but when you're an adult, you and I will be very close and I will explain to you why I had to burn down my appliance shop in order to amass a certain amount of seed money in order to become rich. <laughs> you will understand by then that a man has to have a plan to break out of the torture grid. In my case, the secret is steak knives. He reaches into his suitcase and removes a small box. Here, look. He opens the box. Look at these steak knives. Are these not beautiful? Real mahogany handles, ultra-sharp serrated edges, finest quality steel and nickel alloy. You can see your reflection in the blade. Shiny, new. These knives are the key to my fortune. Do you understand? Do you get me? Yes, I, I think so. You're talking about knives. Sherman says, that's my girl, pats her head. Mother says that we're all Jews and that people kill Jews. Is that true? No, that, but that's what she said. Well, she's wrong, isn't she? Because we are not Jews if we don't want to be. I am certainly not a Jew. But she said you were. I'll tell you what, Lucy. I wouldn't pay too much attention to anything your mother says right now. <laughs> the screw that used to hold her together has come loose, and now her thoughts are just rolling around in her head like so many agate marbles. Do you follow me? I think so. Her head is filled with marbles? Exactly. Now here's what you should think about. He produces a paperback book and hands it to her. This is a book that you should read as soon as you're old enough to understand that money is just a concept, that money actually is not money, and therefore it is all right to, to desire to have it in large quantities. 
because this book, Lucy, is my personal guide to one million dollars. Do you see? Do you get me? Do you follow? Well, in any case, you will. This is a brilliant work written by Louise Seven, a great thinker who also happens to be a close personal friend of mine. Lucy reads the title of the book, How to Achieve Group Mind Through Synchronization of the Cosmos by Louise Seven. Sherman says, that's my girl. And remember, it doesn't matter one tiny bit whether you're a Jew or not. What matters is how rich you become. That's what matters. You've got to face the truth of this, and then your every move like mine will be determined by it. Truth is important, Lucy, because it has something to do with morality. The world is immoral except for this one thing. Do you get me? Yes, I think so. You're talking about good and evil. Yes, that's my girl. She smiles. He pats her head. He closes the suitcase, pauses, thinking. Has he forgotten anything? He looks around the room, sees that Lucy's still holding the box of steak knives. He takes the box from her, opens the suitcase, places the box inside, closes it again. Always remember that your father was a man out of time. I should have been born 10 years earlier. Then I would have been in sync. Remember that. Yes, Daddy. And when you hear Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass on the radio, think of me. Think of me in a pleasant landscape, in an open, in a wide and green lush, on a sunny day like this. Yes, okay, good. I'm glad we had this moment together, Pumpkin. Me too. Sherman picks up his suitcase, sets a sealed envelope squarely on the table, puts a hat on his head, and exits. Music starts. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, sung by Doris Day. Lucy walks to the table and picks up the envelope. She turns it over and over in her hands, examining it. The lights go out and then come back up on Irene and Lucy in the kitchen, and the music continues. Lucy hands her mother the envelope. Irene opens it, reads it, shrieks, crumples the letter up into a ball, and throws it on the floor. And then she says to Lucy, listen to me, I have something important to tell you. Yes, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Yes, okay, but before I do, I want you to listen to me. Once upon a time, there were some people called Nazis who killed a bunch of Jews, the end. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not it. Irene goes out. Lucy bends down and picks up the letter. She smooths it out, folds it neatly, and puts it in her pocket. Irene returns with photographs. Here, look at this. Your grandfather took this photograph with my old brownie camera, which I gave him because it was the best thing I had when he went off to fight the war. If someone you know ever goes off to war, you can give him my brownie camera too, but not until you're nine. You can't be a brownie until you're nine. Then after you're a brownie, you can become a Girl Scout and experience the best years of your life, just like me. Won't that be nice? But that will be later. Right now, I want you to study these photographs of dead Jews, some of whom might even be your relatives. Here, look. Look at this. There must be 100 bodies in that pile alone, all Jews. Well, almost all Jews. There, there, there. Lucy regards the photographs. Did you know that Mercedes or Benz or both, I can't remember. Did you know that they manufactured ovens for the death camps? Did you know that these car manufacturers manufactured ovens which were used to kill Jews? Did you know that? Of course you didn't know that. You're eight years old, you don't know anything, you can't. That's why I'm telling you the truth. It's my duty as your mother to tell you all you need to know about life, and now I have. Now you know everything. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not it. That is not, not it, not it. Daddy says you have a loose screw and I shouldn't listen to what you say. Daddy says we don't have to be Jews if we don't want to. Well, he's wrong, isn't he? Because you can't trust a man who thinks he can make a fortune selling steak knives at 59 cents a piece. <laughs> Which is exactly my point. I'm the adult here and I know things you don't know. And one of the things I know is that you should never listen to a word your father says. Did he tell you he burned down his appliance store? Did he tell you that? Did he? Yes. Well, what your father did is called arson, Lucy, arson. And also insurance fraud, fraud. <laughs> 
And that means that he committed a crime, and now he's a wanted criminal, and the police are going to take him away when they catch him. Yes, it's true. And all the people we used to know will no longer want to have anything to do with us because we have become outcasts, social pariahs. And from now on, we'll have to eat dog food out of a can, and we won't have any friends because nobody likes to hang around with people who have the word tragedy emblazoned across their foreheads. And that is me, and that is you, and that is me and you. Are you, are you, ups, are you upset? Do I look upset? Did I tell you that I won the spelling bee? I got a certificate with a gold star. Big deal, you think spelling bees are gonna matter when you grow up? They won't, nothing will matter when you grow up because when you grow up, you'll have a daughter of your own and you'll do your duty as a mother as I have done, teaching her everything she needs to know about life. And then one fine day while you're working hard to be everything your husband wants you to be, even though you're not sure what that is precisely. <laughs> You'll discover that he's packed his steak knives and his lava lamp and his tools, cleaned out in short everything that he treasured, which did not include yourself, and you'll realize you've been abandoned in a once thriving, once industrial small town across a river from a major American city somewhere on the eastern seaboard, a place that is not even your hometown, abandoned without a word and left alone to raise a small child to be hounded by the police to face the scorn of people you once thought were not as good as you. And then you will be overcome by the stupidity of it all, Lucy, and you will get depressed, as I am now, and you will lose your will. Irene lies down on the floor. Are you having a nervous breakdown now, Mommy? Yes, Lucy, that is correct. Is it going to take long? I don't know. Your father has left us, and nothing I could do would stop him. I couldn't stop him. I couldn't. I can't do anything. I can't. But what will we do? I don't know. Maybe we'll move to Israel before anyone can come and kill us. Israel is a country for Jews. Israel wins wars in six days flat. That's the kind of place Israel is. <laughs> but what will we do there? We'll plant trees here. Start now. She hands Lucy a card with a drawing of a tree on it and with slots for coins all about the branches. <laughs> Take this money tree and go out into the neighborhood and ask people to put a quarter into a slot and then <laughs> when the tree is full of quarters, we will send it to Israel <laughs> and uh, plant a tree in your name or my name or any name you wish except your father's. You cannot name a tree after your father, I forbid it. <laughs> but I don't want to go to Israel. I want to stay here and work on my diorama of Alaska. <laughs> Next week at school, we're going to learn how to turn a Quaker oatmeal cereal box into a camera. Well, you can't stay here the rest of your life, Lucy, so you might as well know that right now. You're sometimes a very stupid child. I'm sorry. Go, go outside and collect money for trees for Israel and let me lie on the floor a while. But, but what will we do? Just let me lie on the floor a while. Just let me lie on the floor a while. Lucy bends down and strokes her mother's hair. Uh, music, uh, Hold On, I'm Coming, sung by Sam and Dave. Irene says, promise me. Lucy says, yes. Promise me that you will hate your father. Do it. Yes, okay, <laughs> promise me. Lights fade, music continues a beat in the darkness then stops. Spotlight comes up on Felicity. 
in the television studio. That's part one. Now it's time for a slight commercial interruption. Those of you here in the studio audience will be entertained by Miss Flora Forster, a visitor to our fair city from the German region of Bavaria, who has chosen to play for you tonight on her accordion, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. <laughs> Viewers at home, please bear with us while we hawk a few local products. When we resume with part two, you'll have the chance to meet a wonderful array of characters, including the aforementioned Louise Seven, as well as Dr. Phil Goodstein, the man who saves Irene from misery, and several taxi drivers, including Sue Mi Pak, who hails from North Korea and has agreed to sing us some ballads, and Jesus Perez, who was born in Guatemala and raised in New York, and has asked for the opportunity to describe for us his recent experience of driving his cab around the world. Some of the actors would also like to have a chance later in the show to say hello to you, including Mr. Archibald Potts, who so ably played the role of my father, Sherman Ickel Bergenstocken. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The spotlight goes out. The television studio is flooded with light as Flora Foster steps onto the stage and commences her rendition in German of I Left My Heart in San Francisco. She accompanies herself on the accordion and punctuates the entire performance with a tap dance. That's part one. <laughs> It's the title of the panel tonight is Why Do Susan Roy, why don't you, how come you wrote plays, not movies, television, how started you writing plays? What started me writing plays? Uh, I used to write, I wrote short stories before I wrote plays, do I have to speak in this? And, um, and uh, I, I like to read my work aloud and I was interested in the sound that it made in space. And as the story goes, I had a, a short story class with James Baldwin when he used to teach in the valley. Yeah. And he said, why don't you write plays? And I said, sure. So here I am. What valley? In the valley. Oh, in the Pioneer Valley, Pioneer Mount Holyoke College. He oh, taught I, at Hampshire. The Asparagus <laughs> Valley as well. The Asparagus Valley. No, he taught at Hampshire. He used to come uh, for about three years or something in the 80s. He would come and, te and teach and then go away. and. Uh, so, yeah. And when was your first play done? At Mount Holyoke? It, it, no, no, it was done at, uh, at Hampshire College. I didn't take any theater classes at Mount Holyoke. No, yeah. I shouldn't I, I say that. You took it at Smith. Well, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Smart. And Charlie, when did you, because I mean, when I met you, you, when I first read your play, you were about me. You were a freshman, a junior, a sophomore in, in college? And had you been writing plays? I don't know anything. I started writing plays in high school, in ninth grade. I uh, took a playwriting class, and um, that's when I started. But did you go to plays? I mean, had you seen yeah, plays? Because yeah, you grew up I, in New York. I grew up in New York, and I always went to plays. And I was in plays in, in elementary school. I was in musicals. I was in uh, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. And, and, uh, and I was always uh, interested in it. And I, I took a class at uh, St. Anne's High School. Nancy Garrett was my first uh, teacher. And uh, we started putting on the plays. The whole class we put on the plays at the end of the year. And that's how I started. And when did you know you'd be a playwright, though? I mean, it just. Um, 
around then when I was about 16 or 17 mm -hmm. at, at the Young Playwrights Festival in mm -hmm. 1983. I had my play, The Birthday Present, done, and uh, I just kept doing it. I just wanted to do it in any way I possibly could, whether it was just friends or uh, I, uh, ever since I, I've been doing that. And Mindy, you, are you from New York? Um, I was born in New Haven and raised in Boston, so no. And did you see a lot of plays? Where did you see plays? Um, I, I think the first play I saw was The Boyfriend, but I was very young and it, it was scary. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I think I started being interested in plays when I was in fourth grade. I was in an advanced reading group and I think they didn't know what to do with us, so they had us adapt the things we were reading into plays and then we performed them. And then I wrote a play called The Case of the Missing Jewels. It was a big hit in the fourth grade. <laughs> uh, but the Jew I theme begins. <laughs> yes, it's all. Yes, it's all. <laughs> and then you went to, you, you, but how did you get to be Bill Finn's assistant? Um, when I graduated from NYU, I worked as an intern at Playwrights Horizons in the literary office. And so I, and then, then a few years later, I, I, so I, they, they knew me and I knew them. And then a few years later, Bill was looking for someone to type something, so I did. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was Romance in Hard Times. Uh -huh. And it was really fun. At the public, when it was <laughs> yeah. there, yes. And I, so I, he started asking me what I thought, and I told him, and it was, I was so delighted <laughs> that he cared. <laughs> but um, that was a few years ago. Susan Laurie, were you influenced by, by Gertrude Stein? Was she? I didn't, it's funny, I, about, uh, formal education and art is always it, it really interests me because I, the people who I think influenced me most I didn't read uh, when I was in college or high school. Um, I didn't read any Gertrude Stein in in high in, uh, in college or Faulkner or Joyce or anybody who has completely turned my head upside down since graduating. But yeah, Gertrude Stein, I, I read a lot of her. Also Faulkner, I mean, uh, or Joyce, some of the characters in, in this play come from Ulysses. One of them, anyway. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, you know. Now you wrote a, but explain your collaboration. You've written a play, it's not two separate one acts. They, they are, they're two separate one acts that are supposed to be related in theme. Um, and we're still trying to figure out exactly how they're related, I think. Your bondage, right? Right, mine is, mine is called <laughs> yes. bondage. And, and um, hers is devotees in the Garden of Love. And um, basically, this was a commission that came from uh, Louisville. Uh, they do a, the Humana New Play Festival every year. And they had the idea of um, asking a so-called senior, commissioning a so-called senior playwright, and then giving me the authority to commission someone else that I wanted to work with. So it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, just to, for me to learn something more about uh, and stretch my own craft. And I wanted to find a writer whose work I admired, but who on some level I felt that, you know, there, there was stuff that I didn't know how to do. And I felt that maybe by working together, some of it would rub off. Um, and uh, I, don't, I, I, I think uh, we'll, we'll see if... if um, but were the plays written after you met, or had you already written your play? No, we, we met in order to do this. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do they share actors or share characters, or? I don't think so. I mean, they're written, so we should know, but I, I don't know. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it, it looks like we're, you know, mine's the two character play and hers is the three, character. three character. Yeah. And it looks like it's going to be, have to take five actors to do it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so. Wow, that wonderful work. sound. Wow. Five <laughs> actors. Yes. <laughs> but the question is, we say, why, why, do you feel that they say the, the I mean, I think this is a terrific time to be a playwright because it seems that the lines are so clearly drawn between what's theater and what's movies and what's television and what somebody is it Herb Gardner says that theater is the medium without knobs, and it's the only medium. Yes, it is. The, uh, and I think there's something extraordinary about that. What I'd like to ask Charlie about is, you know, when I got out of Yale in 1963, there was a thing called Off Off Broadway starting, which is like the equivalent of Paris in the 20s, and. Today, you realize that people are finding equivalents of that. And now, you tell us about your starting a theater, Charlie. Well, I'm a graduate student at New York University. And um, in that program, there are no productions offered to graduate students. So we decided that we wanted to, since we were writing plays, we wanted to put them on. So we created something called the Playwrights Collective, which is a playwrights-based company. And uh, we have, we, uh, there's about 15 of us now. And we have no artistic leader. We it's dem democratic, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the playwright is the artistic. Uh, when we choose to do a play, then the playwright is the artistic director of that production. And um, the idea is also we felt that we wanted, we felt that we wanted to have more production experience. Often playwrights are like the, the least experienced person in the room, and um, so we've participated in other ways as director. People, we have directors from the group. Actors. But does NYU fund that? How do you get money? Um, they give us space, yeah. and um, we do it on our own. We've raised the money on our own, and it's not really part of uh, the NYU program mm -hmm. in any way. But they've been supportive in other ways. And how many playwrights? Fifteen playwrights? Are up? Fifteen playwrights. Now. All NYU. Yeah, NYU, and um, we've had a few productions since we got started about eight months ago, and uh, we use actors from anywhere, and there's a lot of them. And, uh, and it's, it's good because you get to be, other, uh, when you have productions of plays, often you're not included on, in a lot of decisions. And the director meets with the designers, and the director chooses the actors. Or, or you, you check your drama to skill contract. Well, <laughs> well, I, I do, well it's just that I, I, I prefer to be able to have, some, have more control and have something to have some kind of say in how the play is going to and who's yes. going to be, who designers are going to be, uh -huh. all those kind of things. And do you find directors there that are growing along with you that understand? Because, I mean, all uh, of what's interesting about... Inside and outside. Sometimes we we've, we've have directors who are playwrights, and we've gone outside. Billy Hopkins directed my play in June. And so. Billy Hopkins is the casting director at Lincoln Center. It's, um, no, but it's interesting that because each, the three of you have each got a really difficult voice to do. I mean, it is not, it's a very unnatural, it's a, it, I mean, it's the end of naturalism, <laughs> and finally. And it, but it's very, very, yes. yes. And that's the one thing that, yes, I mean, I think that's the one victory that the theater has accomplished over the, uh, in this century, is getting away from that, the, the tea kettle and the running water. And, but finding actors then who understand that that literary voice. Wendy, what do you feel about that? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking about tea kettles and running water. Um, no, I think that, you know, it's interesting that I was going to ask you all if you are at all interested in writing film at all. My only interest in writing 
film is is because you can make a lot of money. Uh -huh. <laughs> and because of that, I haven't ever tried because every time I think of an idea, it's not film that it seems to be. It's consistently it's, theatrical. Yeah. And you too, Charlie? Well, I mean, the thing that I like about writing plays is the, the collaborative aspect of it when you get into rehearsal and you work with actors and it evolves and if you have smart actors, they give you a lot of insight and in the rehearsal process you start mm -hmm. to figure out what your play is all about. And I think that in film, television, that uh, the writer is left out of that process. Mm -hmm. um, it would be great if you could be someone like John Singleton who boys in the hood or Spike Lee and you, uh -huh. could, you could write it and direct it or, or at least be a part of it more, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I don't know how to figure out how to be like that. So, um, what about you? Do you write? Uh, yeah, I. Um, I uh, oh, about a, a year and a half ago, or maybe two years ago, uh, an independent production company in New York called Apparatus. Uh, they produce films, or they, yeah, they produce films. They've done things like Poison, most recently. Uh, Todd Haynes. They. Uh, Todd wrote me a letter and said, do you have any filmy ideas? It's a little post-it. And I said, yes. And a friend, a good friend of mine, who's a writer, and I got together, wrote a film, a film script, and did it, mm -hmm. produced it. I mean, had it produced by apparatus. Um, we co-directed it and made a, a half-hour film. And it's, you say, you know, how do we keep our hand in, sort of? And that's kind of my... Um, we were very involved in that production. I mean, we well, we directed it, and and we saw our vision become a film, um, just like I see my vision, which is also the vision of everyone who's involved in the project, uh, become you know the play on stage. So it's kind of I think we have to choose our people really carefully and say you know if we have a, someone who says well we don't you know you're a playwright. You don't know anything about theater. Say yes, I do, and I happen to have some ideas. You know, and that's what we did when we made our film. And tell about your. You said Baca Theater that folded. How come it closed down? How? How? Why did it close yeah. down? Of uh, you know, funding uh, problems that are all over, uh, and um, I, I think a not great management, not by the people who actually ran Baca downtown, but by the parent organization. They kind of did not see Baca as a, an important. Baca downtown is an important thing, so they kind of, they let it die. Do you belong to a group now? Do you belong to a bunch of actors and writers and directors? Is there? I belong to New Dramatists, but I oh, well, that's <laughs> don't make it up there that often. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I have a lot of... But now, Char Charlie and Mindy, you both work at established theaters. I'm at Playwrights Horizons and at the, and the Vivian Beaumont Theater. What is it like for you? How does it help you working working in a non-writing way at a theater? Well, I have worked there. I don't work there now, but um, in a non-writing way. Yeah. Um, how does that... Well, I, I think when I was working there as an intern, um, first of all, it was a profound experience because when I was in college, I was given the impression that comedy was not serious and Clarence Horizons is the place <laughs> to find out that that's 
that the opposite is true, that comedy is serious. And uh, it was very liberating, because up until then, what I wrote was turgid melodrama, <laughs> which, which, if you decide that it's comedy, is extremely funny. <laughs> inspired by whom? Who was your turgid melodrama? What was it like? Who was it inspired um, by? Well, I, I think the greats were, and they are great, Chekhov, Shaw, Strindberg and Ibsen, but if you mix them all up and try to be all of them, it comes out turgid melodrama. <laughs> yes. Charlie, what is it like working on the other side of that wall? Well, I work at Lincoln Center on weekends. I answer phones there, and I've been doing that for a few years, and they've been very flexible with my schedule because uh, over the years, and that's been one of the bonuses, and I get tickets to go see plays through Lincoln Center, and um, people out there have been very supportive of me, and I've I met, that's where I met some people too. I've done readings there, down in the basement. And um, uh, I've actually done some rehearsals, rehearsed, uh, rehearsed down in the basement there too, when uh, we needed a place. So they've been very supportive in that way. And uh, that's how it's helped. If you were on a panel, David, 15 years ago, and somebody said, why be a playwright, what would you say? <laughs> Still a good question now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there, there are good and bad reasons for being a playwright, um, and, and you know, I, I usually feel that I have some of both. Um, the, the bad reasons are, um, I think that when I first saw some plays, um, and in, actually I didn't start seeing um, non-musicals until I was in college, I was really struck by the notion of being able to create a world which would then physically exist in front of me. And I think there's probably something that's psychologically not that healthy about that. I mean, I think there's it's probably kind of a megalomaniacal impulse. Um, there's a, 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 a good colleague of ours, um, Harry Condolian, who says that um, a playwriting is literally putting words in other people's mouths. Um, you know, and so there's a certain amount of, uh, I think, arrogance and willfulness that's a, 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 attached to the whole process. But on the other hand, you know, it's a, there's a, a, a great amount of freedom um, as a medium. I think that hopefully we've been able to see here just from these three voices that are all, I think, extremely different and talented and distinct and, and have a great integrity. To, and it's, you know, I, I do some work in, in film as well, and there are also wonderful things that you can do in film, but sometimes you just don't have the degree of flexibility creatively, um, the, the opportunity to break form, to just try out new things um, that you're able to in the theater. And I think that that continues to be one of the reasons why, why I, you know, why it's important for me to stay in the theater. Um, actually, John, you know, when I was at Yale, um, I heard that you said um, that poetry, something like poetry is the, is the last refuge, that the, the theater is the last refuge of poetry in America or something like that. Did you say that? That's good. Yes. <laughs> is, it good? is it good? Yes. 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 You said it, you know, when I do lectures, and, and I just wanted to know. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I meant about, I mean, I, if I said it, I don't know, but I mean, I'm trying to think why I said it. But it's the way that poetry in this century became very, very arcane and very belonged to the page. It seemed to me that it stopped its principal, its primary obligation of being poetry, which was to be spoken. And I felt that poetry was the place that the theater was the place where you didn't notice it was in poetry. You didn't notice that poetry was being spoken. It was just the way people spoke. And uh, it's quite extraordinary right now. I was even thinking this the other day when I went to see that, this movie, My Own Private Idaho. 
which I went to see it, you know, at a crowded theater, and a lot of it is the the text, which I hadn't realized, I thought I was hallucinating, of uh, Henry IV, part one. All sort of jazzed up, but I just, but the audience was roaring with laughter, not because they were saying Shakespeare, but because it sounded so great, and it sounded so, it was so invigorating, and you saw this audience at the Waverly go, yay, and it got great, you know, and this guy playing Falstaff, this old junkie, you know, playing Falstaff, it was so, it for me, it was crazy. I was, you know, it was, it was surreal. It was quite extraordinary, very daring in the way that it that it, pr it pretty much works. But the fact, what was amazing, was that to hear this audience on a Saturday afternoon roaring with, not realizing that it was poetry, that it was just an extraordinary way that people spoke, and they weren't laughing at it. It was just said, "Wow!" You could just feel everybody lean forward to mm -hmm. listen to it. It was quite. Uh, and that seemed to be the way that that poetry, that theater is the place where you don't realize that it's that it's poetry. So uh, if I said it, I what do we? I'm trying to think. What do we all have in common? How many of us went to Yale? You went to Yale. The three of us, the three oldies, went to Yale. Yes. But now, how much of us went to the? What about the O'Neill? The three and four of us. Okay. Now, will you apply to the O'Neill, Susan Laurie? Do you know about the? I mean, will you go there? Next year, I mean, will you submit a play? Why? Oh, I, I mean, I, I, um, I have places where I want to have my work done, and places where I don't think about having my work done. Like, where so, do you want to have your work done? Oh, gee, I can't think of anywhere that doesn't want. Well, you Winterfest, you're going to well, go to Winterfest, Yale, yeah, which is Yale. Do. Yale in the in January does a series of four Winterfest. plays uh, by by yes by new playwrights. Yeah, I mean. I don't really think about, I don't think about the next place where I want to play done. I guess I think more about, you know, what's the next, what's the next word, you know, what's the next line, where are we, you know, uh, so I don't, I don't really send, I've, I work so hard on writing, I really don't send stuff, uh -huh. I mean, maybe I should, but I, I'm just writing all the time, so. I haven't sent my plays anywhere recently. Mindy, you, will you now? Do you know about? The, will you send something to the? I mean, do you, will you send something to the O'Neill? Where will you take? Have you seen your play, Existential Gourmet? Has that been performed? No, this is a the Existential Gourmet is a work in progress, that I, and so it has not yet been performed or finished. <laughs> uh huh. Um, but uh, have I? The Guadeloupe was performed at uh, in numerous readings, and then in a full production at Westbeth Theatre Center. Were you happy with it? With the production? Yeah. There were good things about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's terrific, because I'll tell you, it's at a very key time right now where you can, where, I mean, I feel, you know, when you're, you know, in your 20s and you see a bad production, a miscast production or a misdirected production, that you blame yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, you say, oh, Christ, I'm not a writer. I mean, you know, they're all right. And I think it's, that's... Extraordinary. Did you feel that at all? I mean, do you? No, no. I mean, I always get such a kick out of seeing people say the words that I've been looking at for a long time, and and embodying them. And also, they, I think actors always say the words differently than I would, and and I like that. I think it it always adds meaning to to it. Or yes, there's something. I w it's a letter that I have in. Uh, in, on the wall at, our, at home, and it's a Xerox of a letter that William Inge wrote to Jean Kerr, 
And uh, it said, Dear Jean Kerr, I, would, I rarely read my mail today, but I would always read a letter uh, from you, from Eugene Kerr. Uh, and I see that it's asking for money for uh, next season at New Dramatists. But I must ask a question. Isn't helping new dramatists a little bit like helping people into hell? <laughs> and then, less than a year later, he had committed suicide. Okay. Now, that letter haunts me. I mean, I have that letter up because it's sort of like St. Jerome or a skull or something. And it's just, uh, what do you feel about that? I mean, what do you feel that he meant? I mean. <laughs> I mean, what do you? I mean, I think that therein lies madness. I mean, I think that we're. How do you? How do you protect yourself, or defend yourself, or end up not being in hell? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Charlie. It's a picture of a nude man. A nude man. That's right. <laughs> is it William Inge? Who is it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's no but uh, no, but I'm sorry. Charlie, how do you defend yourself against advice and? Advice. Yes. <laughs> how do you know what to? How do you learn what to listen to, and how do you learn what not to, to take and what to throw away? Well, I, you know, when I had that play produced, uh, I was told that I needed to rewrite it so that it would be accessible to all people who came and saw it, and so I did. And I discovered this was a good way to discover what never to do again. And and having done it and proven to myself that I could do it, I threw it away. And I told them that if they wanted to produce my play, they'd have to produce the play the way I liked it. And they did. So, but it, you know, it wasn't exactly fun to be in that position. I would prefer to produce, to be, you know, in a situation where the play is liked the way basically it is. You know, in in this kind of an essential change, I don't think it was a good idea to ask me to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that. Um, well, I mean, I've never been in a position where I felt pressured to change anything. <laughs> And um, I mean, I, I've been doing plays because I want to do them, and I haven't really, um, you know, I haven't been paid for them or anything, so I don't feel the pressure to change something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I just go with my own instinct about it, and uh, you know, I just probably was, if I was writing for television or film, I think those would be the things that I, you know, you'd come up again. And Susan, Laura, do you? How do you take? I mean, how do? I try to uh, to remind myself as often as possible, um, you know, who I am. I tell I, so sometimes in the morning I'll say I know who I am, or I think I know who I am today, and I'm not going to be someone else or think I'm someone else today. Think you know I know that my writing is you know way out there, and I don't spend time trying to convince people who aren't into this kind of thing to to like it. I, I know that I'm over there, and so I, you know, so I don't spend a lot of time trying to 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 get people to like me who aren't interested in my on my work. But the man who burst into blames. Yeah. I thought that, yes, it's very. Yeah. Were you all supported by your by your families? I mean, do you, what do your parents think about? This? Well, when I was 22, the Massachusetts. Artists Foundation saw fit to give me a playwriting grant, which was very helpful in convincing my parents to be supportive. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie, what about you? Well, uh, both my sisters are writers, and um, playwrights. Uh, no, no. They're, they're novelists, and uh, 
my parents have been very supportive of uh, all three of us. And we've they must be the most scared people. In town. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of having one child, right? But three, oh, but they've been—that's terrific. And yeah. you, Susan Laurie? Uh, my parents are really supportive. My my older sister was a clown in the circus, and that you know cleared it. For that me. Some questions from the audience. We'll just uh, yes. Can we collect the uh, the questions from the audience? We'll just. Now, Charlie, who do you? In, in Mitty, who in, who do you? You said that you know James Joyce and James. But you know that you and Olivia Plurabel and all. I mean, who who do you read, Charlie? Who do you go to for nourishment? Uh, well, uh, I'm a big fan of James Baldwin. That's yeah. why. I was oh, great. You should have been in the valley. Where were you in 1983? Not in the right place. <laughs> yeah, no. And, um, and Mindy, who do you read? Neil and Kundera. Um, Kundera. Uh -huh. You know, I have a, in my, 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 where I write is in my bedroom. Could you speak? Could you talk, speak oh, the mic? sorry. Where I write is in my bedroom because that's where my desk fits. And on the wall behind my desk is, um, are a lot of bookshelves, and I, I read like anything off the shelf. And I have so many different writers that I read. Sometimes I just read until I get an idea, and it doesn't even come from what I'm reading. It just, I, it, it's like seeing what people do with their ideas helps you to think about yours. Uh, here's a question to Susan Laurie Parks. Ms. Parks, what is your method to that creative, wonderful process that allows you to put magic to paper? And how long does it take you to create? Uh, yeah. If you saw our time schedule that we have yeah, here yeah. tonight, that you will, yes, 8.39, we will now take our call, yes. But how, how long do you spend on a play? I mean, do you? Oh, gee, you know, as long as it takes. Um, yes. You know, I don't have a, unless it has a deadline, uh, uh, Dave and I have a deadline on the 1st of November, <clears throat> so it's, that play's gonna be finished. Uh, <laughs> But um, I don't know, different plays uh, are written in different ways. The beginning of The Death of the Last Black Man, uh, I woke up and I s actually saw it on a wall. And I just started writing it down and then I started, it started working that way. But uh, that doesn't happen with all the plays. Like, I, you know, I sit, I wake up at, at like 6.30 in the morning and sit down and at 11.30 I walk out the door and do something else, walk out of the house. So I work really hard. Uh, the plays read tonight are on the com comedic genre. Do you feel that a dramatic play would not be welcome or successful today? And, uh, yeah, do you feel? No, no. I, I don't think that. I don't think that's true. I like dramas. <laughs> uh, yes, I don't What's understand. a drama? I that's mean, these, these are big words, you know. I, don't yeah. know. I, I thought there was drama in Susan Laurie's all of them. They're very serious. Charlie's play, and I think in mine too. It's not always funny. I don't know. I mean, is drama serious? I mean, well, I mean, I think that was the big difference was when I in the fifties was it a serious play and it had no laughs in it, and a comedy was you know was yes. I think that that it's hard to to break things apart anymore because nothing is just funny or just serious mm -mm. about our lives, so why should we write plays that are that limited? I don't mm -hmm. know. But is naturalism really dead? 
<laughs> What's naturalism? I don't know what these things mean. Well, hmm? I'm sorry, I know we're in Lincoln Center, but I, well, you, you do, know, because... Naturalism, what does that mean? <laughs> no. No, but I mean, would you write... I mean, you have a play with a 400-year-old woman yeah. living in a pit? <laughs> with, her, with her son, who's a little bit younger, yes. <laughs> I think I, what's really exciting about the 90s or the whatever whatever we are in right now is that uh, the idea of, of re different people's realities are acceptable to talk about. And to me, a 400-year-old woman who lives in a pit is the way things really happen, or a man who's dead and alive at the same time are the way things really happen. And I think that's what's exciting, that naturalism isn't just you know, it's maybe it's still naturalism, but maybe the definition has gotten a lot bigger to accommodate That's all of us or whatever. I didn't want to say that. Uh, yes, it's extraordinary. I mean, to see Ingmar Bergman's reduction of uh, Doll's House in, a little while ago, you know, when it was over in Brooklyn. I mean, it's the uh, to see just the way that naturalism is being reinvented because it's television and movies do naturalism, so that the theater is, I mean, theater-free Chekhov and, and Ibsen are freed from those burdens of, uh, yes, of, of the four walls. Uh, whatever, what, for the older playwrights, is that me? <laughs> what is the hell you refer to and all seem to acknowledge? Oh, Wendy? <laughs> oh, I, I think it's the hell of basically sitting down to write a play. I think that, you know, whether you're Mindy's age or, you know, Charlie's or mine or whatever, you still have to confront the same thing. You're still sitting there and you're still beginning again no matter how good the last one was or how not good the last one was. And then every play has a life of its own. I mean, every play has a whole journey from which it will go on. And you never know what that's going to be. And it could be great or it could just be the most horrific thing that's ever happened. But a play that's got to happen to those plays. And that's scary because I think the thing about plays is on a scale from one to 10, you have to care 10 every time. And with that, you can either, it can be a euphoric experience or it can completely break your heart. And the scariest thing would be if you never even finished it, if you didn't even get that far to let it go. So I think that that's some form of hell, you know? Uh, David? I mean, I would have to say that the, uh, we all know we're talking about in the hell, and it's the hell of writing and the difficulty and the fact that, uh, you know, it is true that every, it, doing it more doesn't make it easier. I mean, when I was younger, I used to be able to, you know, I could do a first draft of a play in like three or four, I did one in three days, okay? I can't do that anymore. Now I've got a new play, and I just finished the first draft. It took me six months. And it, in some sense, um, and so I think it's Sam Shepard that said that you know you have to uh, you have to get past your technique. I don't think he quite put it like that, but um, you know that you learn so much and you you start to learn tricks. And then the question is, you want to be able to access that technique, but you have to get back to that impulse that that you used when you were first writing that was raw and original. And that doesn't necessarily get easier as you get older. And I think that's one of the things that's um, that I find particularly. Painful about writing in general, but I also have to say that I think the hell of writing is um, is a relatively good hell to be in. I mean, I'm always happy to be there. Yeah. Yeah. The hell is the, I mean, it's the uh, 
It's also a different kind of hell that the three of you haven't really experienced. And I guess maybe uh, just like the hell of being rejected or humiliated. We were rejected. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was rejected postage due. <laughs> 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 I didn't mean, I guess I meant in the, you know. Not that we don't, we just want great reviews or good reviews. I think that, uh, the uh, the despair that reviews can can put. I mean, fighting that back. I mean, you know, because it's it's there's something incredibly public, public about it, and learning. That's why I ask you how you defend yourself. That seemed to me that was what the question was about: is how you just learn the shield to guard yourself so that you're not burned by or burned or humiliated. That's the worst thing, you know, when you just you do something. It's like you know, and then. You know, the response to it is it, you realize, you say, oh, my God, I have that which I've created turns into my humiliation. And that's the, uh, that's the danger, and that's the risk, and that's the sort of masochistic fun of it. <laughs> and uh, that you, or oh, the addiction that one can't, uh, that you say, well, I'll try once more. But you see a lot of people, I mean, there was a man, when I grew up, it was an extraordinary lesson, that there was a man across the street who was great, my great, great friend. And in the 30s, he had had a big job in Hollywood, and he wrote a play. And he was so sure it was going to be a success, he burned all his bridges, came to New York, and you know, and wrote the play. And Oscar Hammerstein directed it, and Glenn put up the money for it. And it ran a couple of days. And he never recovered from it. I mean, I saw that this man literally, opening night, I wasn't, I was just, born. I mean, I didn't know, but I realized that he never recovered from that opening night. He never recovered from those six days that his play, that his play was at uh, then called the Hollywood Theater, now the Mark Hellinger Theater, now a church. And uh, <laughs> it always haunted me. And Glenn was the one who sent away, you know, sent away to Yale Drama School and said, you've got to go there. If you want to be a playwright, you've got to go to Yale. But I always was haunted by the cost of being a playwright. Mm -hmm. The cost that a man, it got to be the key fact in somebody's, in, in, in somebody's life, and how you live in that, uh, that slalom race. Uh, but that's what I think we mean about the, uh, the hell of it. I Here's mean, how you get yourself to do it again once you've been through that seems amazing to me. Well, whatever, I don't know. It's, uh, Anyway, and I think that somebody, okay, here's a hell of somebody like Tennessee Williams, who at a certain point in his life changed the style of writing. It was a remarkable play called A Bar in a Tokyo Hotel. It got, was just crucified. And, and Williams, because he didn't belong to a theater, didn't belong anywhere. He belonged to a time that passed. And he thinks Gregory Moshe was the only one in Chicago who did his last play three times. I mean, this tomorrow, Thursday night, Arthur Miller opens a play in London that is not to be, it's, no date is not to be done here. I mean, it's about, that's why I asked about belonging to a theater. I know for me, belonging to a theater is one of the great sustaining, one of the great sustaining things that you've got a place to go to, a place where for them now you belong. And that seems to be a, uh, an extraordinary difference. And uh, luck for me. Here is a question. Wendy Wasserstein, you are my idol. <laughs> How is this? Uh -huh. <laughs> Do you believe in studying playwriting as an undergrad, majoring in playwriting? Can the form be taught? 
Hmm. Is this person married? Who is? Do I can the playwright? You know, it's interesting because um, when I, I when I was at Yale Drama School, I, I did I studied playwriting at Smith, not at Mount Holyoke, just at, at Suzanne, and I actually took my first playwriting class because. I was falling asleep on the Congressional Digest at Mount Holyoke. I was becoming a congressional intern, and a friend of mine told me we should take playwriting at Smith, and then we could go shopping. And <laughs> shopping is much better in Northampton than it is in South Hadley. But what, what was very important to me was this was the first time I realized that you got credit in life for something you really like to do. And I think what happens particularly with girls is that we're brought up to be well-rounded. So you take music lessons and dancing lessons and even acting lessons to make you a well-rounded person. So then your daughters can be well-rounded too. <laughs> but, but things in the arts, are, you're never told that that can be like the main course, that that can be what you're going to do. So I think what's good about playwriting, especially in undergraduate, is it says this is equal to chemistry. This is equal to law school. This is, this is what you want to do. This is your voice. Voice, do it, it's serious work. And I think that's very important for writers to understand, for everyone to understand, actually. Um, and then the other thing is, I think what you learn in class is, it's not just what's taught to you, it's with a community of writers. I, I once taught it at Charlie's class at NYU, and I, it was wonderful because there was another generation of writers coming of age together. For myself, the people who I still feel you know, aesthetically closest to are like Christopher Durang, people I came of age with as a writer. We understand each other on a certain level. And I think that's just as important as who is gonna teach you playwriting, uh, just to be there with other people who are taking their voices seriously. So I think it's a, a very good idea to take playwriting classes. Uh, this is a question that's very interesting. This is a very, there's always one very angry card, but I'll pick out one part of this. Why is the development process, like the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center included, the road to watered down dullness? I mean, do you think plays can be developed to death? Yes, you shake your. Sorry, I'm not sure yeah. Yes, you are. You um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I do think that. Um, I think plays have to be taken as individual um, entities. Uh, every play has a road that's best for it, just like every writer has a particular way of working. And there are some plays and some writers that work really well within a long development process, and they use that, and, and, and it helps them structure the play, and they hear it. But to institutionalize that, and therefore assume that all writers should somehow go through the same process, and this is, is right for everybody, is, is I think a little simplistic. And therefore, uh, I do think that the developmental process can often lead to things that are, are watered down. Um, I mean, I know with, with M. Butterfly, for instance, I never actually heard the play read until the end of the first week of rehearsals for the Broadway production. And, um, you know, granted, maybe it could have been a better play, but, um, you know, it, I, I, I don't know that going through a lot of development would have been, would have been so great either. Here's, why do, you, why do theater instead of movies? Another way of saying, talk about theater versus movies. Well, we sort of brought that up. to have people alive and in front of you and you know you're standing in the back thinking boy are they going to blow their line or stuff like that and that's it's, it's also great to change things night after from night uh -huh, to night uh -huh, and try uh -huh. new things and uh, get a new idea about something maybe even after a production and, 
and uh, try to approach it differently the next time, if there is a next time. But I think this, in a sense, is the key question that we're all, tonight, we all have to answer in our own ways. How can you break into the theater if you're not connected with a theater or a grad school? This is for anyone on the panel. I, I wasn't connected necessarily when I first went and worked at Playwrights Horizons as an intern. I was just a, a graduate. I was a graduate of NYU, but um, I, I think you just have to do what you want to do, and find ways to, you know, to do it. To let if if you uh, if you think other people have to let you do it, then you have to ask them to let you do it. <laughs> How did you find out about the thing tonight and knew to write to me? I mean, that was quite smart. Yeah, well, I was at a. <laughs> it was weird. I was at a dinner party. Uh, a, a large dinner party, and as I was leaving, um, Harvey Shapiro, a poet who is here tonight and a member of Penn, said that he was a member of Penn and that they were doing this playwrights thing and uh, that you were involved. And, um, and I said, oh, maybe I'll write a letter to Wendy. And he said, yeah, that's why I told you. <laughs> but, so that's, but that's an example of a good thing to do because you never know who's going to get the letter, you know. Uh, so I think one shouldn't be shy about these things. I, I do. I think so. I mean, it took me two weeks to, to get the nerve to write you a letter. <laughs> but um, I, I finally decided that it was better to ask you and, and risk your saying no than not to ask. So I always think the amazing is that I know Mel Shapiro, the director, uh, in the 1960s was in Minneapolis. He was working at the Guthrie, and he called a man named Arthur Ballard, who ran a thing called Office for, Office for Advanced Dramatic Research, which was sponsored by the Rockefellers, unfortunately no longer in existence. And Mel said, I want to go to New York. Do you have any, are there any plays? I'm just, I can't find any new plays. I, yeah, I just want something. And the, Arthur Ballard said, yeah, he said, there's a bunch of plays that just came in a month ago. He said, I don't know what to do with them. They're about Vietnam. Nobody wants it. They're by this guy, David Rabe. And there was, and David didn't know what to do with them, and sent them because he had heard about the things thanks to the the TDR, then the Tulane Drama Review, and sent them to the the OADR, and Arthur Ballot read them, loved them, gave them to Mel Shapiro, who came back to New York and went then to Joe Papp and said, "I want to do these plays." It ended up that Mel didn't direct them, but they were. That's how that was the route that they were. David was in Philadelphia teaching at Villanova and sent his plays to Minneapolis. So, there is the main thing I think is what Susan Lawrence said is just to keep writing and not keep the play in your head and just keep uh, getting the play and just sending them out. Um, for David Wong, vis a vis the, the differing opinions on Columbus 1992 celebration, what is your point of view on Columbus in the journey? Uh, in the voyage, I guess you mean. Um, that's a, a, an opera that um, I wrote the libretto for, that uh, Philip Glass is doing the music for, that uh, we're opening in on Columbus Day next year. And um, it's an interesting. It, it's uh, we. I wrote the libretto about three years ago now, uh, based on a story by Philip. And um, um, I think we all knew that there that there was going to be uh, a lot of focus around this uh, yeah, quincentennial from a lot of different groups, um, and uh, but it hadn't yet come to pass. And so it was interesting. I was working in a relatively uh, closed environment. I mean, just sort of doing my own research and seeing what I came up with. And basically, I think that I came up with um, a differentiation between 
Columbus as a political pawn and Columbus as uh, the, the, the act of the, the journey itself. Um, to the extent that it's impossible to ignore that a lot of havoc was wreaked by that invasion. and um, But I, I started to look at, at really the relationship with Isabella and the fact that if you were to look at the Spanish Inquisition and you were to kind of go, well, let's, let's see, let's try and pick one person who's responsible for it. You could certainly make a good case that Isabella might be, you might be able to put a lot of that at her, at her door. And it seemed to me there is an interesting uh, relationship between the, the Spanish Inquisition and um, uh, the, the killing Jews in, in Spain and then uh, killing Native Americans in the New World. And so that, so that, that, that political arc started to interest me as well as the idea of, um, I mean, I saw these ships that Columbus came over in and they were tubs, you know, and I was going, gee, that, that was pretty brave. And so I was really trying to reconcile those two principles and um, it's the conflict between that and, and the ambivalence that I think uh, I use for the basis of, of my Columbus character, which by the way, um, the play, although commissioned for the quincentennial, um, only ends up being, Columbus only ends up being uh, one character in a much larger um, scheme. Well, you bring up a question here, is why be a librettist or a book writer for a musical? Is that interest you, Susan Laurie? I mean, to work with a musician? Oh, to work with yeah, dancers? To yeah, work with? I, I mean, a lot of uh, people have been telling me for a long time, gee, your work is like, uh, there's, what do you call you just haven't written the music, people keep telling me. So um, I'm actually writing um, a, a libretto right now. I'm not right now, but I'm working on one. Um, because finally I get to do everything I've always wanted to do, which is score. I mean, I can score the text now in a way that I can't just do it with... Are you yeah. a musician yourself? Me? Yes. I play the harmonica, but that's about oh. it. <laughs> it's hard to talk. So it's hard to talk. And <laughs> yes. No. I'm uh, studying that. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm in the musical theater program at NYU. It's a graduate program. And um, I'm not really, I, I think it's, it's new. I mean, I've just started this program, and I, I haven't, I'm just starting to learn things like, like how to rhyme, <laughs> and it's fun. Uh, I'm not really sure I know the answer to why, except that I, I think collaborating is just another dimension of, of making a world happen. And, and the thing that's, that's great about working with a composer is, is that they can, they can add, well, I think I used this word already, but dimension. I mean, the, 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 the sound of words sung it's just totally different than the sound of words spoken, and if you if your if your words have music in them, then then it seems like a natural thing to do to want to have actually have music playing. I mean, it, it's hard for me to say to answer this question right now, but I did want to say something because I I am studying. But you're in the you've yeah. already answered. You're yeah. in the program, Charlie. Yeah, uh, I played the violin for ten years, and um, I'm still getting over it. <laughs> I, I don't have any musical ability. <laughs> That's we just have three more questions. I just want to go, and I just want to hear is Donald Green, who is. Oh, okay. Well, what does success mean to each of you without considering box office sales? <laughs> no. <laughs> what does success mean to you, David? Oh. 
Well, okay. you know, it's, actually, I've, it's interesting because I'm struggling with that right now. Because um, I just finished the first draft of this new play, and it's the first, you know, full length since Butterfly. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's like the expectations are so much higher. And I've started to give it to people to look at. And um, I've been amazingly calm about it. And I don't know if, if this is, um, you know, some sort of self-sedation or what. But I think that... In this particular case, I've, I'm started to feel, I've been feeling, well, you know, this was, it's a play about something that, that happened to me, you know, that, uh, that I was involved with that was actually rather painful. And the play really helped me to uh, work out how I felt about this thing. And I accomplished what I wanted to with it. Um, I think it probably does need another, you know, another good going over. But um, that, I think those internal goals ultimately have to be the most important thing. And... And if people can relate to it, I mean, that's wonderful. And uh, obviously, I would much prefer that. But um, it's, I think you have to set out goals for yourself with each play, which don't relate to how, simply how well it's going to do at the box office. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've, I've had small, little small successes. I get it's the same thing. I just have to remind myself of, of who I am and what I'm doing. And the desire to please is really great I, for me anyway. But I think playwrights, you know, you want to please. You want people to laugh or cry or whatever, you know, in the audience. And I think we just ha we have to continually remind ourselves that, like David said, this is what I'm doing, you know. This is the play. This is the play I'm writing, regardless of all the outside noise. Uh, for me, I guess it would be just to be able to continue to be able to write plays and get them done somehow, whether I have to answer phones or you know have another job, or, and al also to establish uh, this company that I'm working with, and so that we do have you know, you know find some kind of home so that we can have an ongoing thing and a core of people to work with and to uh, collaborate with. That's that would be. Ideal. That's a hard question to answer. I think um, there's the noise inside my head, which is the plays that I write, and then there's the noise all around outside of me, which are the thing that things that I have to deal with in order to <laughs> write the plays that I write. So as long as I can write the plays, then I feel successful. Um, and part of that is also having them performed because they're meant to be performed. They're not just. Um, to be written and looked at, so that would be success. I mean, and I think that's why box office success is is a popular one, <laughs> as it allows people the freedom, if they get money, to just write. I mean, that seems to be the point. Wendy, that's right. I just finished a new play as well. David and I have been sort of writing our plays at exactly the uh -huh. same time, and I just sort of sent gave it to people to read last week, which was interesting because I actually had finished this play around Labor Day, and I kept poking at it all the time because I kept thinking, oh, I have to fix this, I have to fix this, and then finally I called the director and producer and just said, you will have this in a week because I knew I had to have it out of my house. And I think very, because otherwise I would have poked at it for another year mm -hmm. or so. But I think it was very much the same experience. It sounds like what David had. It was having had written the play made me very happy. And also what um, John was saying about having a home, because in fact I sent it to the same person that I've been working at at Playwrights Horizons for the past you know, 15, 20 years, and same director who did the Heidi Chronicles. And it felt 
very, it felt very good mm -hmm. that, and and that's not thinking about box office, you know, whether Cher can do it or not. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with finishing the play and being part of a of a process that will protect that play and getting it out of my apartment. <laughs> well, there's a question I sort of put together. One question from Donald Green, who's a poet who who is having a reading on November 3rd, 9 p.m. at Flamingo East, 219 East 2nd Avenue, 13th Street. There's also jazz going to be there. He's a poet. His question is, is Broadway the best form for a truly serious playwright? And the other question is, will we all stay in New York? Well, we'll yes. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, I was, yes. Where else would you want to go? Where? Are, yes. You, you try getting. Ta I mean, I'm a terrible driver, and when you try getting taxis in Los Angeles, it's just ridiculous, and they're very expensive. <laughs> no. No, I, I would stay in New York. I, I was born here, drug up here, and I'll drag me. Out. Yes. No. I mean, I'm addicted to this. Is New York? Whatever. It is. I think that it's. I think it's one of the terrible things about today is is that somehow with this administration that the the ideal has become sort of a rural sort of you know suburban, that the city is no longer important. To me, the city is still the place that makes mm -hmm. that make. And I think that's one of the. Re I think that today the city that the government is afraid of the city because it is too many. It's, you can't manage a city. You can't control. A city is a place that's filled with ideas. A city is a place where things change remarkably. I think that's uh, why I think I have to stay here. Yes, will you stay? I guess so. And Charlie? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'd like to leave, but I don't know where to go. Really. <laughs> 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 and Susan Laurie? I could, I could, yeah, sure. I know. I just came back from Seattle, and I was so glad to be back. So I guess. <laughs> And David, but you live in San Francisco, yeah, so you but you live both. But you yeah, live I, actually, yeah, I'm a, I'm a native Californian, and so and and I, actually, I've tended to live three years in New York and three years in LA, and go back and forth. And right now, I spend two weeks in each. So, and here is the last question of the evening, the worst for the last. What purpose do we feel? Do you feel you serve in society? <laughs> <laughs> Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know fashion. I think <laughs> that is my purpose. <laughs> Modeling fashion, <laughs> color trends. Uh -huh. That's it, Mindy. <laughs> uh, what, what I want to know is, are my classmates writing these questions? <laughs> Susan. <laughs> I hope I serve absolutely no purpose in society. I mean, why does why does something have to have a use? Is is my question to you? Go ahead, Dave. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't. John. <laughs> I think it's the last place where we go where you, they're not selling a product along with it. I think it's the last. It, it, our obligation is how do you tell the truth? And our obligation is to try to find the truth and figure out a way to tell it the way that it is. It's good. And to remind that, yes. Anyway, I want to thank, I, I'm so glad that it's, it's wonderful to see David and Wendy here tonight, but it's terrific to meet Mindy and Susan Laurie and Charlie. Thank you, the three of you. Thank you very much for coming. And thank you, Penn. Wait, what time is it? it wait, wait a minute. Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs>
but we're only three minutes late. Oh, that's great. Yes, we're only three minutes late. God. Perfect. Thank you.